0: In the earliest years of the Alliance, there was an unquenchable passion for completing the work of the evangelization of the world and bringing back the King. Scores and later hundreds of volunteers presented themselves as candidates for missionary service. That in spite of the fact that the earliest team of missionaries sent to Africa had been decimated by disease. Within 12 months, four of the seven who sailed from New York were dead of fever. It's been said that it was deemed so possible that sailing for the mission field would result in the death of the missionary, that some of the early workers adopted the practical habit of sailing to their destinations with their gear packed in a coffin. In the face of dedication like that, the earliest Alliance family was determined to get these volunteers to the field. But where would the necessary funds be found? In the year of 1891, The New York branch of the Alliance held a deeper life conference in a Methodist camp at a place called Round Lake. It was an 11-day conference primarily focused on Bible teaching and issues of the deeper life. The last day began with an early morning Bible study in which the speaker cast a bold vision. He said how simple and how practical it would be to send the gospel to every creature in the next 10 years. That lit a fire. People began to volunteer to become the messengers needed to complete the task. A pastor actually laid his young daughter on the altar and prayed that God would raise her up to be a missionary. And nearly everyone there pledged their commitment to pray for the evangelization of the world. Later that morning, a relatively new convert named Louise Shepherd did a startling thing. She gave all of her jewelry to the Lord as a gift to help send one more new missionary. And thinking that the value of what she had given was about half of what would be needed, She asked for someone to match her gift to ensure that the work would be done. What happened next was reported by an eyewitness observer who said, An extraordinary scene then began. One after another began to take off pins, rings, watches, chains, and other precious heirlooms, many of them gifts and dear by every tie of holy affection, and laid them on the missionary altar. Others placed money on the altar. That day the resources were provided to send four additional missionaries. That scene was replicated again and again because God's people had begun to understand that everything, their very lives and all of their gifts and possessions belonged to God and they had been called to be His stewards.
1: Good morning. We are in a series of messages where we are looking at some of the values and beliefs that we in the Christian Missionary Alliance see as central to our faith and central to our mission. I hope that you enjoy these little historical interviews, we'll show you, it, not interviews, interludes, um, that we uh, show you from time to time. Uh, I hope the youth enjoyed seeing that twice this morning. I noticed that Wes was showing that to them in Sunday school, um, so they'll probably remember it. But, but I, th- I think these, uh, these historical accounts really help us to connect, um, not only with our heritage, but with who we hope to be today as a movement. And one of the core values Of the Christian and Missionary Alliance goes like this All that we have belongs to God. We are merely stewards. All that we have belongs to God. We are but stewards. I want to read to you a scripture passage uh, this morning, which at first glance might not seem like it has a whole lot to do with this core value, but uh, taking a deeper look at it, we're going to see that it, it really does. It's in Luke chapter 20. So you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 20, and when you get there, you can find verse 9. Luke 20, starting in verse 9. This is actually um, from very late in the earthly life of Jesus. It's the last week of his life before he goes to the cross. And he's in Jerusalem. And it says there, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him." Jesus here, as, as I said, is in the very last week before he goes to the cross. He has just been confronted by the religious leaders, the people that were really in charge there in, in Jerusalem and, and, by extension, in the nation of Israel. So it's the chief priests, and it's the scribes, and it's the Pharisees. So it's basically the big guns have come at Jesus. And what they're doing is they're challenging his authority. They're talking him down. They're doing everything they can possibly do to turn the people against him. And so Jesus responds to them with this parable, which is not a hard parable to understand, really. It's actually a lot more like an allegory than a typical one of Jesus's parallels, because it's easy to figure out what goes with what when the, as, as, you know, as the symbolism starts to take shape. And If you were in Israel and you knew anything about the Old Testament, you knew that God very often compared the land of Israel to a vineyard and God as the planter of the vineyard. So to these people, it was no surprise that Jesus would use a figure of speech like this. And it's actually very obvious to them that the owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants are the people of Israel, especially their leaders. The servants that are sent to collect the fruit are the Old Testament prophets. And of course, the son of the owner is Jesus himself. And this parable is a prediction that the Son of God is about to be rejected and killed. And the religious leaders who are listening to Jesus tell this parable are at that very moment in the process of plotting to do just that to him, to reject him and then to kill him. And so there's high drama here as Jesus is directly confronting these men with this parable. Now the people who hear the parable all respond by crying out, may it never be! May this never happen, because it's a horrible parable. If you think about it, the the, the people of Israel killing their promised Messiah, and they're like, no, no, it couldn't possibly happen. But it did happen. It did happen, so the question becomes, how did it happen? That is to say, why did the Jewish leaders... reject jesus how could they reject a messiah that they had supposedly been praying for and and hoping for for hundreds and hundreds of years what was the attitude in their hearts that caused them to fail so miserably and to lose their own souls in the process what happened well that's why jesus tells parables because it helps bring these things into sharp relief so we have to ask ourselves what was the attitude of the wicked tenants in this parable Of the vineyard. What caused them to mistreat the owner's servants and and murder the owner's son? It's actually pretty straightforward, isn't it? They were the tenants, they were the renters, if you will, but they wanted to be the owners. The owner had trusted them with his possessions. He'd he'd put a lot of trust in them, so much so that he had gone away to a far country and he was going to stay there for a long time. So he had given them a lot of trust, a lot of responsibility. And although it typically took several years for a vineyard like this to start producing enough fruit to be a, a profitable operation, it was customary back at that time, if you had an arrangement like this, that the owner, if he was far away, would send a request to the people that were supposed to be tending the vineyard. And the request would just be for a sample of the grapes, just a sample of the fruit to kind of see how things were going. And by doing this, this was actually kind of a a legal official thing. He was expressing his continued interest in the property. He was reminding the people that were supposed to be taking care of the vineyard that he was still the owner. And the tenants knew this. And so by refusing this request, what they're doing is they're basically indicating their intention to steal the vineyard. The owner is very patient with them. He gives them many, many chances to to change their tune. But because of their greed, they end up murdering the owner's son. They could not stand the idea of being mere tenants, mere renters of the vineyard. They demanded ownership for themselves. And Jesus here is very, really, directly accusing the leaders of the nation of Israel of having the same attitude As those tenants, demanding to own what God had merely loaned to them and entrusted to them as stewards or as caretakers. These religious leaders were somehow, they had had somehow imagined that that the nation was theirs, that the land was theirs, that the kingdom was theirs. And if if that was the case, then that would allow them to kind of call the shots and have the honor that was due the owners. But none of this was theirs. The nation was not theirs, certainly not the kingdom. And in fact, even the land, even the promised land was not theirs. It never was. It had always belonged to God. If you go back into the Old Testament, And you look at how the land of the nation of Israel was treated all the way back. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all those places. there, there There was private ownership of land and materials. There's no question about that. The economy that God set up in the Old Testament nation of Israel was for the most part a capitalist economy with private ownership. However, God put some very interesting rules in place regarding how the people could use the land that they called theirs. They didn't really have... The privilege of doing whatever they wanted on it. For instance, they were forbidden to harvest 100% of their fruit or to glean 100% of their fields. Why? Well, God says that doesn't belong to you. That belongs to the widows and the orphans and the immigrants because they have no land of their own. So you can't harvest it. They were required to bring the first fruits of their produce to God as an offering every single year. Why? Because in doing so, they were affirming that it had all come from God's hand, that he was the ultimate owner, or as it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So not just the, the, the world, but everything in it belongs to God. That was something that was drilled into the hearts and the heads of the Israelites from very early in their history. And of course, the people were also commanded to bring God a tithe, a tenth of all their earnings. Why? Well, because a tithe was always, was always symbolic of the whole. When you brought a tithe, when you brought that tenth to God, what you were really saying is, it's all yours, God. Not just what I'm putting, not just what I'm giving you now, but it's all yours, every bit of it. And this is my way of declaring that to you. But there was one more tradition that God established in Israel that was a very odd one called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, what would happen was all the land in Israel was supposed to revert back to its original owners. And so if you had bought some other family's land, or some other family's property, at the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, you had to give it back. You just gave it back. And so when land changed hands in Israel, the cost of the land was supposed to be prorated based on how many years there were left until the next Jubilee, since the closer you were to the end of the 50 years, the less use you'd have of the land. Now, there are a couple different reasons for for this kind of unusual arrangement. For one thing, it cut down on what we would today call systemic poverty, because the rich could only exploit the poor for so long. And if a family had gotten in trouble because maybe they had mismanaged their funds or their their possessions very badly or they'd hit a spell of misfortune and they were impoverished, they would get a chance every 50 years to try to make a new start. But beyond that, and, and even more importantly, it was a reminder that the people were only staying on the land. It wasn't theirs. They were God's renters. They were God's stewards, his caretakers. The land and everything in it belonged to God. It always had and it always would. And ultimately, if you see the history of it, the people misused the land. Not just by worshiping idols in the midst of it, that was a bad thing, obviously, but also by greedily over-farming it and ignoring God's command he had given them to let it lie fallow every seven years. And what happened was God took the land away from them. He sent them into captivity in Babylon. And if you read Second Chronicles, you'll see it says there that for those 70 years the Jews were in captivity in Babylon— The land enjoyed its sabbaths. The denial that everything belonged to God eventually led the Israelites to disobey and eventually led to their captivity. And ultimately, some 600 years later, that same denial, that same rebellion, that same spirit of denying that God was really the owner of everything, that same spirit led them to murder the Son of God himself. Okay, that's bad. I want to contrast that their attitude of those leaders at the time of Jesus with the attitude of another man. And this is a man that all of those leaders would have looked up to. This was a man that all of those leaders in Jesus' time would have claimed as their ancestor and their mentor. And it's a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham, so the original Israelite, if you will. Okay, I'm, just, I'm not going to read any of Abraham's story to you. You can look at it. It's in Genesis um, 12 to 24. Um, we're just going to kind of follow the flow of the story, but as we do that, I just want to ask, what was Abraham's attitude? What was Abraham's attitude toward the things that God had placed under his care? Because Abraham was an extremely rich man. He was an extremely rich man, and a lot of us, in Abraham's position would be very tempted to what? Just take it easy, right? Just get a place on the lake, get a place in the mountains, get a place at the ocean, get a place on a golf course somewhere, some of us, and we could just live the good life. Abraham could have done that. He had the resources. He could have lived like that. But in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to pack up and move. Okay? Move where? God says, I'll tell you when you get there. So, you know, Rich people typically don't get where they are by doing things like that with no plans, right? They like to have a plan. Uh, This didn't sound like much of a plan. I wonder what you or I might have said in Abraham's situation, right? But God, why why should I move anywhere? That sounds bizarre. I mean, I've already arrived, you know? Or we might say this. I can hear us saying this to God. God, I'm fine with worshiping you. I'm fine with saying that you're my God. I'm fine with being your follower, but but can't you just let me stay here and kind of be a good example to these ungodly people here in Ur where I live? Because they need a witness too, don't they? I'll just stay here. Why would I pack up and leave when I'm so settled? Now, Abraham didn't say that, but if he had, here's what God would have said back to him. Actually, Abraham, the truth is if you're my follower, you're never settled you're never settled. Have you figured that out, by the way, church? That if you're a Christ follower, you're never settled. God does not let you settle. Not totally. Dawn and I have had times in our lives when we we have relative peace and stability and we've had times of relative chaos and and uncertainty and transition, but never have we had a time in our lives when we could have said that everything was settled. Christian, here's a newsflash. Settled isn't supposed to happen here. It isn't. The world is not, this world is not the place where you settle. If you settle here, you will dry up spiritually. There's always a next thing. There's always another adjustment to make. There's always another trial to undergo. There's always another command to follow. There's always another call to serve God. There's always another season in life where God wants to do something new with you. So don't expect to settle. Not if you're really following Christ. You won't settle. God told Abraham to move. And Abraham obeyed this crazy command. And in doing that, Abraham was saying this. He's saying, God, I'm taking my remaining time in my life, my remaining energy, the remaining life that I have left in my body, and I'm giving it back to you to do what you want with it. Because I don't really own my time. I don't really own my energy. I don't really own my life. You do. God, so Abraham packed up his whole estate. He moved all of it to what we now know as the promised land, or the land of Israel, where he basically became the world's richest homeless person. That's what he was. Abraham never settled anywhere. He lived a nomadic existence for the rest of his life, and the only plot of land that Abraham ever owned in the promised land was a cave that he bought so he could bury his wife. Oh, and they buried him there too. That was it, a grave. So if you measure Abraham's life by the American dream, you know, home ownership and a comfortable life, he was the most abject failure who ever lived considering what he started with, right? In fact, one time, Abraham had a really big chance to move up in the world. Um, there was a war going on shortly after he got to the Promised Land. There was a big war going on between a whole bunch of tribes that were fighting with each other. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, who had come down to Canaan with him, had been kidnapped as a prisoner of war. And so Abraham wanted to get Lot back, so he, he had all his servants and he mustered all his men. He turned them into an army and they went out to rescue Lot. And in the process of doing this, they ended up tipping the balance of the whole war. And the king of Sodom, who, that was one of the cities that was... Um, triumphant, one of the tribes that actually won this war, was so grateful for Abraham's participation. He said, Abraham, all the booty that you got, all of, the, all of the, the spoils that you came across when you were fighting, it's all yours. You can just keep everything. It's a gift from me. And Abraham said to them, I don't think so. I don't want it. I don't want all that stuff, lest somebody say that the king of Sodom was the one who made me rich. So I will take whatever God gives me, and that will be enough for me. Thank you. And then a few verses later, Abraham comes across a priest of God by the name of Melchizedek, and Abraham gives him a tenth of all he owns. Why? Because that man was representing God, and because a tenth is symbolic of the whole. And Abraham knew that everything he had belonged to God and always would. And yet, there was one thing that Abraham didn't have that he really, really wanted. And if you know the story, you know that that was a child. And most of you know that God, back in Genesis 12, had promised Abraham that he would become the father of many nations, but how can you become the father of many nations when you can't have a kid? Sarah could never conceive a child. And so Abraham waited and waited on that promise as it went painfully unanswered year after year after year until finally when Abraham was 100 years old, literally 100 years old, and Sarah was about 90, Isaac was born. And if you think, The sun rises and sets on your child, or your grandchild, as the case may be. And maybe it does. But that's nothing compared to what Abraham and Sarah had. Can you imagine how precious that child was to Abraham and to his wife? Then in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, Give me your son. Give me your son as an offering now what would you and I reflexively say back to Abraham if we heard a commandment like that I imagine for me it would go something like this God just, no way I mean you can have everything else God I'll give you every. I don't need that I'd take my stuff take my land take all my servants take everything I own take my life but not him that's my son he's mine you know how long I waited for him and what he means to me God If there's anything I want to keep, that's it. But Abraham didn't say that. Instead, the very next day, he set off from Mount Moriah to give his son back to the Lord. Of course you know that, that God sent an angel at the last minute to stop this from happening. We know that Abraham, by his willingness to do this, became a model of what it looks like to have faith in God. That is, that you can read about that throughout the entire scriptures, basically. And anytime you give to God, it requires some kind of faith. But Abraham becomes the father of the faithful. We also know that by be- being willing to sacrifice his only son, Abraham was becoming a pointer for us to a sacrifice that God would one day make himself by offering up his own son to die for our sins, and there was no angel to stop that from happening with Jesus. But, please don't miss the stewardship angle on this event. Abraham is showing us here what it really means to live by the truth that everything we have belongs to God, and we are just caretakers. Our money, our possessions, our house, our family, our friends, our time, our health, even our own lives. This is all on loan to us. It belongs ultimately to God. And because of this, God has the prerogative to do what He wants with all of these things. He can change them. He can move them around. He can use them for different purposes. And when He decides to, He can take them back. Now, obviously what we've got here is a very dramatic contrast. We've got, on one hand, we have a man who is so committed to God's ownership and everything in his life that he's willing to give back the life of his own son. On the other hand, we have a group of Abraham's descendants a couple thousand years later who are so determined to claim ownership over something that doesn't belong to them that they're actually willing to take the life of God's son. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and say that every single one of us in here would say that we're somewhere on the continuum between those two extremes, right? Somewhere between Abraham on one hand and those Jewish leaders on the other hand. So what I want to do in the time we have left is I want to just ask you a few diagnostic questions. So you, or you and your spouse, can, can maybe have a framework and have a discussion and try to understand where you're at here on this continuum and what it means to you that God owns everything and hopefully move the needle a little bit toward the Abraham position and away from those religious leaders who killed Jesus. And there are, there, you're going to see a lot of very practical steps come out in what we're about to talk about that, that you can apply to your life. But again, yes, it's practical, but I'm, I'm, what I'm really aiming at today what I'm really aiming at today is your mind and heart. Because if that doesn't get in the right place, all this doesn't matter. That, that, that idea, that truth that God owns everything we have, that needs to be internalized. We need to really believe it in the core of our beings and that is very, very difficult to do in this day and age. Of all the core values that we're going to talk about in the next six or seven weeks, this one is the hardest one to get into your brain, to get into your, to, to, to the bottom of your heart because it's so hard because life today is all about defining and protecting our own rights and privileges and stuff, right? And if God owns everything, then, that, then he owns the rights and privileges to everything and he can do what he wants with it and with us and that doesn't fly for us today. So it's a whole different mindset. Let let me look at the first diagnostic question here to see, and you'll see what I mean by this. since This is the most common way. This is the easiest thing to get a hold of. But here's the first question. Do you understand that God owns your money? That God owns your money and God owns your stuff? And, of course, a very practical question would be this. How much money are you giving to God? There's a practical question. Or maybe, are you tithing? Are you giving a tenth of your income? And, of course, that's a good thing to do. Dawn and I, from the very first day of our marriage, back when we didn't have a whole lot, we made a commitment to live on a maximum of 90% of our income after giving God that first portion. And we, we had some relatively lean years early on, but God has never failed to provide for everything we need, everything we truly need. And although I am not going to tell you that it is a sin not to tithe, because I would never make it that easy for you, and I don't think the Bible does, I will certainly challenge you to consider it, especially since a tithe is symbolic of the whole. Now, I know that for a lot of you, that would be kind of a journey to take, right? It's a, it's a big thing, and so some of you are going to have to start small, and that's perfectly fine. But listen, any, don't get too hung up on percentages and amounts, and here's why. Because ultimately, it's not just about the amount that you give to the church or to missions or to the poor. I can still remember um, the time that I consider to be my call to ministry. It was back in 1987. I was at the University Student Missions Conference in Urbana, Illinois. And one of the speakers over the course of that week was Dr. Tony Campolo. Some of you know who that is. And uh, one night, uh, Tony Campolo he was preaching and he taught us a new song. He taught us a version of an old hymn that we all knew, but he changed some of the words and so we all learned that version of the hymn. And it was very catchy. It went like this. 10% to Jesus I surrender 10% to him I true what is it freely give see I don't remember it that well I do remember the chorus though cuz it was so rousing right you can join me on it if you want ready I surrender 10% Isn't that catchy it Sounds silly but here's <laughs> Here's the the question. Is giving 10% of our income or even more, is that just a duty that we discharge and then we're done being God's caretakers of our stuff? Or does he perhaps care maybe a little bit about how we use the other 90%? I've heard the challenge to financial giving phrase something like this. You this You might be familiar with this. How much can you trust to God? How much do you trust God with? And that makes a little bit of sense, right? Because it's all about faith, and giving takes faith, and that's a question about faith. But how much can you trust God with? Isn't that what we ask about our kids? Right? Don't we go to our kids and we say, hey, how much can I trust you? How much can I trust you to be good for this babysitter? Can I trust you to, to make good decisions at this party I'm letting you go to? Can I trust you to drive my car safely? And so we're going to say to God, God, can I trust you with my stuff? Really? Why are we asking God how much we can trust Him when we should be remembering that when it comes to our belongings, He's the one that's trusting us? Isn't that what stewardship really means? So yes, He does care about the other 90% or whatever it is for your family. He owns your house. He owns your yard and your car and your boat and your 401k and your clothes and your rainy day fund and all the food in your house and all the cockroaches in your garage. When you make decisions regarding these items, is God a part of those decisions? Does it enter your mind that God owns it all and has access to it? Probably a subcategory of that question is this. Do you understand that God owns your home? I know that our homes are pretty important to us. Um, whether uh, your home is small or large, plain or fancy, this is the place that you retreat to at the end of the day, right? It's, it's the refuge, just the place of peace and quiet for you and your family. So your home is very important. But I have seen so many of you in this church serve God so well by graciously welcoming other people into the home that God has loaned to you. Not just for you know, fellowship meals and small group Bible studies, that's great and you should do that. That's wonderful. Some of you have even opened up your home for people who are facing emergencies or they need a safe place or a warm place to go when they're in trouble. Praise God for Christians who really know what it means to practice hospitality because they've learned that all that they own, including their home, doesn't really belong to them. It belongs to God. Here's another question. Do you understand that God owns your time? You knew this one was coming, right? Because that's the hardest one, probably. For many of us, this is the most precious resource of all. It's a lot easier to write a check sometimes than it is to commit time to something or to somebody, right? Now, I know some of you are going to tell me, what are you talking about? I don't have any time. There is no time. Why? Because your life is super busy, and it's filled up with so many activities for you and your family, especially if your kids are a certain age, right? There is no time. So if you're in that position and you're just running from thing to thing and you have no time at all, let me just ask you to ask yourself this question, okay? Ask this question, have we as a family, have we as a family just fallen into this pattern because it seems like we had no other choice and it was what we were supposed to do and we had to do, or have we made a conscious decision to use God's time in this way? I'm not telling you how to answer that question because it's not up to me, okay? So I am, I am not telling you that your child does not have to be on that soccer team or on that cheerleading squad or in that musical, although in some cases that's probably true. But, but really what I'm, I'm asking you, if God has any access to your schedule, and if he did, is this the way that it would really look? And okay, so you, you look at your whole schedule and you say, okay, I'm thinking about it, and yes, God does want me to live like this, and he does want us to do these things, and so it's Okay. That's your decision, not mine, and that's great. But please remember this. When you and your kids participate in these activities, when you're at that soccer game, when you're at that gymnastics meet, you are probably surrounded by a whole lot of people who don't know Jesus, which means there might be another way for you to redeem that time, do you think? And for those of you who do have some free time, whether it's a little or a lot, most of us go through phases of our lives that have a little bit, a lot, almost none, too much. We go back and forth, and, and honestly, everybody has a little bit of free time, okay? So here's another question. How do you think of the time that, that a lot of people will call me time? You know what me time is, right? It's, we all need this time. It's a time when you chill. It's a time when you relax and you regain your center and your sanity. It's your Calgon take-me-away time, whatever that is for you. I'm not talking, by the way, about the time you spend with God in prayer and Bible study. I'm actually assuming, rightly or wrongly, that you're doing this, and if you're not, you should be. I'm talking about the chill time. I'm talking about this is the time I spend reading or doing a crossword puzzle or playing the piano or maybe even playing a video game or something like that, the me time, okay? Here's the question I want you to ask, and it's a challenging one for most of us, maybe all of us. Is your me time, that chill time, is that the goal of your day, Or is it a means to an end? In other words, do you look forward to that me time so much that the rest of your life has turned into a drag and a duty and a drudgery, and you just can't wait to get to the time when you can chill and unwind and do nothing? Or, here's the other option, do you see this time as a chance to re-energize and rejuvenate yourself so that you can get back to the mission God has called you to? In other words, is your me time ultimately your time or God's time? I'm getting convicted, so I'm moving on to the next one. Do you understand that God owns your body? That your body belongs to God? You are not your own, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. You were bought with a price, and that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Paul says, glorify God with your body. Now, in this passage, he's actually talking about avoiding sexual immorality, which is certainly an issue for many of us, but it can be applied also to how you eat, how you exercise, Whether you're getting enough sleep, what destructive habits you may have learned that are hurting your body. When you borrow something from somebody, maybe a tool or something like that, aren't you more careful with that tool than you are with your stuff? Right? I'm sure you are. Then why are we so careless sometimes when it comes to how we treat these bodies that we have on loan from somebody else? They're on loan from God. Next, do you know that your children belong to God? Do you know that your children belong to God, those of you who have them? When you dressed up that little baby on that Sunday morning a long time ago, or maybe just recently, you dedicated that little boy or girl to the Lord, did you really mean it? Did you really dedicate your kids to God? Now, you might not have to make an actual, you know, journey to Mount Moriah like Abraham did. But I think about that, that pastor in the video that you saw earlier who actually laid his daughter on the altar and prayed for God to make her a missionary. Now, I don't know whether that girl ever went to the mission field or not, but that was up to God, not the father. God may have had other plans for that little girl, but I, I still admire the dream that that man had for his daughter. We have a verse that we, um, that we read a lot at baby dedications. And it's kind of a funny verse, and we joke about it a lot because of what it says. But the, but the verse says this. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, you know? Don't we kind of, those are kind of cute verses, right? So we, we look at each other like, hey, what, hey, your quiver is looking good over there, you know? But I want you to think about that illustration just for a second, okay? Are those arrows supposed to stay in the quiver? Is that what an arrow is supposed to do? What is the purpose of an arrow? The purpose of an arrow is to be launched, right? So here's the question, are you preparing to launch your children as God would have you do, or are you planning just to keep them in your quiver? Are you raising your kids to preserve your family legacy, to carry on your family name, to continue your family tradition, and to consolidate your family's inheritance? Is that why you're raising your children? And in the process, are you passing down to them a pretty bad case of affluenza? You know what that is, right? We've all got some of it, affluenza. It is a painful, debilitating, contagious, socially transmitted condition involving debt, overload, anxiety, and waste that results from the unending, dogged pursuit of more. Is that what you're going to leave to your kids? Or, here's the other option, are you preparing your children to be launched out into this world to make an eternal impact for Jesus, even if that ends up looking a little bit different and maybe even a little bit radical? In the way that you teach them, in the way that you talk to them, in the way that you pray with them, and especially in the way that they see you and your spouse living your lives on mission, which is it for your kids? Which is it for your kids? Are you preparing them for the quiver or the bow? Okay, last question, which we're not going to talk about today, is um, do you understand that your, your talents and abilities belong to God? And the reason we're not discussing that is not just that we're out of time, but in two weeks we're actually going to spend the whole time talking about mobilizing every fully devoted disciple to complete the mission of Jesus, which is another Alliance core value, and that's, that's where we'll talk about our gifts and our, and our talents. So in closing, let me just make one observation, because this is a hard topic. It really is. It asks us to look at life in a whole new way, and it's very, very different from the way that our world is encouraging us to look at life, and it's very different from the way that the people around us look at life. But remember this. Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done. He isn't asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. One of my go-to verses really in life is, John, is in John 13, And it's on the night before Jesus died. He's in the upper room with his disciples. And it says there that having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And when I read that verse, I have a picture in my mind every time when I read it. It's a picture of Jesus for the first 33 years of his life. And he's pouring out his life like a pitcher of water, really slowly, just a little bit at a time. And then when he gets to John 13 and when he gets to Passion Week, he just turns the thing upside down and pours everything else out of it for us. That's what I see there. Jesus, you know, there was, there was so much that he could have claimed. He was equal with God, right? After all, it says this in Philippians, it says he was equal with God, but he didn't consider that equality with God something to be held on to or grasped or claimed Though he was rich, it says, for our sakes he became poor, giving up his very life so that we could have a new life that we didn't deserve, so that we could be forgiven through his blood. It was very clear throughout Jesus' life that he didn't consider anything that he had to belong to him. It all belonged to the Father to do with as he pleased. And he summed up that attitude in his last recorded prayer before he went to the cross when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And in fact, he summed it up even more with the very last words he ever spoke from the cross, which said, Father, I've given everything else. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Calvary was the ultimate expression of the core value that we're talking about today. Everything, everything we have belongs to God. We are merely stewards. Let's pray, and then we'll sing that song that we messed up before.